Economies don't implode overnight. It's a slow burn. And by the time you realize you're in trouble, it takes an enormous amount of effort to restore confidence, which is something in massively short supply right now. So many issues all seem to be hitting us at once, from failing infrastructure to rising poverty to persistent and debilitating load shedding. None of this stuff is happening in isolation. None of it is new. It has all been amplified, of course, as the situation across the country worsens and people get increasingly frustrated with the status quo. Well, Zintle Tikwe is the chief executive of the Consumer Goods Council of South Africa. And you and your, your chairman, Gareth Ackerman, of course, who's the chairman of Pick and Pay, Zintle, have been talking about the, the negatives that South Africa faces. And the negatives you describe as a lethal cocktail. Is it possible to neutralize the lethal cocktail? Because yo, there is so many things going wrong, it's hard to find things going right in this environment. Uh, good afternoon, Bruce. Yes, definitely it is possible because we cannot not work towards fixing South Africa. I mean, for our members, what yesterday we had a summit, our annual summit, which was about connecting bridges a building together. So that is basically what we wanted to talk about, to say why Garrett and Johan, who's our culture person, and myself, we're all there because we are all coming from different perspectives of what is the industry through. Garrett Ackerman from the, as a culture person from a retailers, and Johan Forster, a culture person from manufacturers. They all gave perspective of the challenges that each of these sectors, which form the consumer goods sector, what challenges are they going through? So it is possible. We cannot not do anything for this country. Again, we know that there's a huge amount of work going on with an enormous amount of intellectual capital being dedicated to the issues that the country faces, not only from within the ranks of government, where, of course, there are capable people doing the very best they can on a daily basis, but where chief executives are committing their time, their resources, they're adding people into the mix, trying to alleviate the very worst aspects of the failures of power and other issues as well. I wonder from a Consumer Goods Council of South Africa whether or not you are seeing any fruits of their labor just yet or whether or not you're concerned that the effect is not going to be felt anytime soon. Um, I think we it, it just there is work that the business is, is doing. We are part of Business for South Africa uh, with all the three pillars that you are working towards. Garrett is one of the, the key members that are participating for on behalf of the industry on that. We are, from the, uh, the crime and, and corruption perspective of CGCSA, we participate in that really strongly because we already have a system in place that is assisting our members with regards to crime and reporting and, and law enforcement agencies. So there is some work and engagement that we are seeing in government. And when we do, like I'll talk to you just about the avian flu, the challenges that we're currently having. We had a meeting sure. with the minister of our car just to showcase the challenges that retailers are experiencing and the manufacturers with, uh, with regards to chicken and eggs. And she did take that upon herself to go and speak to, to her counterpart minister uh, from the tra trade, and, uh, trade and industry and competition. And we saw a regulation that came out about two days later 
which is going to try and alleviate the challenges that we are going through. So we're going through that uh, 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 regulation as an industry, and we're going to be providing that. Because the, what we had said, the plans of what we were putting, uh, or government was putting in place, they were going to take six months to a year. And we said, we're coming through to a critical time for South Africa, which is the festive season, and chicken is the key protein, and that timing is too long. So they were able to come back to us uh, it feels in clear looking at it from you know, from the outside of all of the hard work that is going into this that we've hired 200 firefighters to fight a blaze um, and we're constantly putting out little fires and we're constantly tackling the big blaze but it's burning hotter and hotter and hotter we're not getting to the very core of the issues and the very core of the issues are poor policy choices poor implementation of policy yes. the boring stuff we talk about all of the time Gareth Ackerman yes. at your meeting yesterday is talking about Saudi Arabia now we know Saudi Arabia has got lakes of oil underneath it and uh, yes. it's got that as a huge benefit for its economy but it's made significant strategic strides over the last five years, significant policy decisions, active policy decisions to change its economic trajectory because it knows it cannot rely on oil in perpetuity. And one of the great frustrations in South Africa is while we're putting out fires, we're not going right to what the core of the issues are and actually reformulating the South African economy, reshaping the South African economy, making tough Definitely. choices that will shape mm-hmm. us, put us in better shape for the future. Definitely. I, I, po- I promise you policy and regulatory issues are the core for ch- of our challenges in this country. As a consumer good, we do a number of policy submissions and showcasing government of the challenges these policies that they're putting in place are going to create for the industry and how they're going to throttle the industry from the growth perspective, which is going to end up costing the consumer more. There's a, like we had submitted a policy, um, a submission of more than 320 documents, of one policy document or regulatory transfer that government is putting in place that is not just only affecting our member, it's going to affect negatively the consumer, the communities, every single person that deals with any product that comes to a point of sale. And there are technological solutions that we have proposed to government to say we can find solutions to, 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 to do exactly what they want in policy. But no, they want it to be in a physical form. So there's a number of policies that we have to go in and showcase to government, but it just takes a really, really long time for them to see the challenges that their policies. I, I, I mean, one challenge that we always find is that we always have to look into developing or developed economies so that we then come implement these policies that in South Africa, that South Africa is not ready for. So it's been a biggest challenge for us to always go one by one from a regulatory and policy perspective. And one, I mean, I think uh, with the business for South Africa and the, the discussions that the CEOs are having there, and I attend those meetings of the CEOs to say, are we finding as, as a country, uh, uh, when all, all the representative of business for South Africa, when they're meeting with government, to say, are we understanding that we need one him? one balanced scorecard to say these are our plans that we have and then not each department coming through with a, a policy transcript that is mm. a problem for our 
policy or the direction that we go because we find that different departments are not working in unison because we find a policy in one department saying this and then we find another policy in one department yeah. saying something completely different to the other one. So it's a big problem that we have and, and, and it's something so simple that government can do and it's their responsibility to do that. Exactly right. Zintla, thank you. Zintla Chikwe, who is the Chief Executive of the Consumer Goods Council of South Africa. Great frustration coming through, of course. So much of what people think is policy is policy of open mouth. And uh, Gwede Montash is particularly good at this. As and uh, in his role, I think you know, we get confused in the roles that different people play. But Gwede Montash is he's a very important part of what he does as chair of the ANC. The ANC staring at the potential of an electoral defeat in the face in 2024, maybe having to get into bed with political opponents that it doesn't want to do. And it's increasingly looking for scapegoats as we get closer to those elections in an effort to try and deflect attention from its own failing. Recently, we had Gwede Montage call upon organizations like yourself, Wayne Divanej, to publicly disclose your funding sources. Uh, you see it, I think, as an assault on independence, I wonder um, what the what the real concern here is in terms of government sort of looking to deflect attention away from the you know the, its failings, where organisations like yourself and Gift of the Givers often step into the breach uh, to resolve big national issues. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Bruce. Uh, um, exactly that. You know, uh, first of all, I mean. I think what he's got to understand is that NGOs don't sort of have time to sit around and, uh, and squander their supporters' funds uh, on, on, on litigation. Litigation is the last step. And and while he's trying to push this issue towards us and saying, well, who's funding you? The question we've got for him is, who's funding you? You use our taxpayers' money. You run roughshod over due process. You think you can just uh, do what you want. And then when we use the rule of law to stop you in your tracks and we go right to the nuclear deal issues, it just goes on and on. The car power ships matter. They, they don't follow due process. We stop them and they get angry with us. And we say, just follow the law. Do it properly. Let us in. Engage with us. We don't want to not event in this country. We don't want the country to fail. We don't want investors to to walk away. We want all of what you want, a developing economy, but we want it done properly within the realms of the laws that you have set and, and, and that we have a good constitution of. So he continuously tries to deflect these issues onto us. I mean, we are funded by tens of thousands of individuals. What did you want? A list of everyone who gives us 120 rand a month? He's not going to get it, first of all. And secondly, that this is just so futile. And it's again, it's just it doesn't take forward the, the, the national project with and the national project is getting fewer people off state benefits and into jobs. It's getting more yeah. people into dignified employment. It's getting economic growth in a way that tax revenues rise so that when the uh, finance minister stands up in parliament um, on the 1st of November and, and delivers the medium term budget policy statement, he doesn't sound like old mother Hubbard who goes to the cupboard and the cupboard is bare. But unfortunately, at yeah. this rate. Um, we, you know, we just see government borrowing going up. We see possible, I doubt it's happening because we're going to elections next year, but, you know, people are banding about VAT raises and stuff. And yeah. we talk about raising money and finding more money, finding more money, but we don't talk about ways of growing the economy and actually cutting wastage and cutting superfluous spending. 
Well, exactly, and that's what we should be doing. I mean, first of all, just start fixing the, the basics, get our education system right. There's so many angles, we don't want to go into all of them, but we're, we're failing on every front. We see uh, corruption running rife. We see a wasted or wasteful expenditure uh, and government policies that are just, I mean, Bruce, you must see the stuff that we are seeing that's coming into the country uh, under the radar that is not even uh, being, you know, uh, and, and, and all the various duties. We could be making so much money if we just applied the law properly. And we have government departments who know this, who see this happening, and they just either don't care or are incapacitated to do anything about it. Now, we've got a lot to do to fix this country, but for as long as government departments and ministers think that they know it all and they don't need the interventions and the involvement of civil society and business to fix these things, then I'm afraid we're just going to continue to, as you say, the minister looking for more money uh, when he's not going to get it. We're overtaxed and we need to now start making money through creating jobs, employment and getting efficiencies back in the government. And they simply can't see this. They, 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 They are so blinkered. Uh, caught up in their in their corrupt and uh, uh, nefarious activities that I don't think they really care about this country, quite frankly. One huge upside today, that SARS-led raid of coal producers who, for goodness knows how long, and we've known this for an awfully long time, and finally getting it all together to actually raid some of these coal producers who have been sucking money out of the, the ESCOM kitty for an awfully long time, and finally there is hopefully going to be, um, you know, some, some consequence for that. Yeah, and long overdue. You imagine there's a lot of this. So when you look at the illicit uh, tobacco trade and so forth, I mean, those type of interventions uh, on is not enough and the opportunities are big, but we've got to get on top of these uh, these corrupt syndicates that are doing this. And uh, the more we do of this, I mean, there's, there's some real, real successful organizations like SARS, like the Auditor General, uh, Department of Water and Sanitation starting to do some good stuff, and that is the SIU. But we need a hundred of those because that's just scratching the surface of what's going down in this country. When Divinage, the thorn in the side of government ministers and uh, uh, political parties, particularly the ANC, it happens to be the governing party, uh, and continues to do so with vigor and enthusiasm. The Money Show. The Markets. Rudy van Amadva is with us this evening. Rudy is with AdviceWorks. He's a portfolio manager at AdviceWorks. And there was a, a, a disappointing uh, inflation number. Was it a growth number? There was a number. There was a number from the United States today. And it only takes one number for everybody to get into a bit of a tiz and a bit of a panic and a bit of a worry about the future. That number came out today, Rudy van Amadva. And it weighed, understandably, on markets and the enthusiasm of Tuesday uh, very firmly eradicated today. Unfortunately, Bruce, you're quite correct. Yeah. So I mean, there's been much anticipation ahead of the, the release of the U.S. inflation numbers uh, this whole year, really. Uh, we've seen markets running in anticipation of us having seen the worst of inflation and, and hopeful that central banks can start cutting interest rates and, and then get back to sort of stimulating economies. And we're still teetering. You know, we keep getting told by central banks, that, that inflation remains sticky. And and uh, I think as a result, we've seen over the last month or so, markets starting to slip a little bit. People saying, well, interest rates are likely to stay higher for longer than expected. Um, and those inflation numbers that came out today 
although they weren't catastrophic, were at best mixed. You know, the, the core inflation numbers were were unchanged uh, year on year and and month on month, but the actual CPI number was worse than anticipated for month on month and on a year on year basis, um, which again, you know, plays to the to the theme that we probably are going to see rates higher for longer than people expected. It's, it's certainly not in a position yet where the Fed can aggressively start cutting them. Um, and we still have uncertainty about the potential for, for inflation to reaccelerate here. We've seen wage settlements globally uh, coming out at, at quite elevated levels. And obviously the current uh, upset we're seeing in the Middle East is has the potential to unravel into into you know worse outlook for oil prices, um, which again can can stimulate inflation and 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 necessitate further interest rate upside. Unfortunately, yeah, exactly. A lot of people are really, I mean, perplexed by this, though, Rudy. They look at inflation, they say, "Hold on a second, but American inflation, yes, it's worse than expected at three point seven percent, but that's not bad. But if you add the current inflation of three point seven percent." On top of what it was in September last year at 8.2%, on top of the September 2021 level of 5.4%, it means, you know, if you look cumulatively since September 2021, inflation's probably compounding at about 20% since then. And, I mean, prices have gone up very substantially. They are incredibly sticky in big economies and in our own economy, we know that prices tend not to come down and they certainly don't come down nearly as far if when they do come down, not nearly as fast as when they go up. And that's, I think, is what is raising fears that this interest rate thing, which we, we kind of want to wish away with a magic wand, is not something that goes away with a magic wand. It only goes away with possibly fairly brutal pain. Unfortunately, that is the case. As you rightly state, inflation is a cumulative thing, and uh, the fact that it's at sort of 3.7 odd now doesn't mean that, uh, it just means that the, the rate of, of uh, inflation or prices increasing has, has slowed somewhat. But, but we've still seen all those price increases. We're still paying materially higher, higher prices for, for most goods, and, and people's living standards have have had to absorb that. You know, their, their incomes haven't raised at the same rate. So, in fact, there's significant distress in the in, in, in the corporate sector. We've seen earnings in the U.S. market dropping over the last three consecutive quarters. Domestically, obviously, company profitability is under pressure as well. Tax receipts are under pressure, and that's where a lot of this this interest rate stress comes from. You know, the central banks can influence short-term interest rates, but Longer-term interest rates are also influenced very significantly by the amount of debt that has to be issued. So the governments don't like to spend less, and they have a lot of debt to issue. And uh, at the moment, you know, there's, there's uh, concerns are starting to to rise about who's going to be buying all the debt that needs to be issued uh, to continue funding this uh, this spending of, of our governments globally. Yeah, and that, unfortunately, governments are addicted to spending other people's money. It's what they do best, and uh, uh, they treat it like this this never-ending pot. And it's not just the South African government. Of course, it's governments all over the place, as you say. They don't like to cut spending, not one little bit. That's one way to get yourself deselected or de-elected. No big moves on the JSC today. No big shocks. No big horrors. Just a, a sort of a sideways slow burn down after what was quite an encouraging Tuesday. 
Well, it's quite correct, Bruce. Yeah, no, no major issues today, but I think you know, the market is treading water ahead of the, the inflation data. And then once that data came up and, and obviously it was a little bit disappointing, we, we gave up some, some ground. Um, you know, hopefully we don't see an acceleration to the downside in the next couple of days. We hope so. Thank you, Rudy van Amarba. Rudy is a portfolio manager at Advice. We're going to talk to Nisa Muti at Daily Maverick. Uh, Cold smugglers. It's a fabulous story today. Uh, there is the, uh, an incredibly convoluted network that has been stealing money and providing substandard product, and in some cases, dangerously bad product to ESCOM for an awfully long time. We know this. And we've known it for a long time. And finally, South Africa's authorities have uh, launched raids today, search and seizure operations, uh, following tip-offs. And it's the frustration of how long it takes to get any sort of action, but relief that action finally has been taken. Pick up on that this evening. We'll also catch up with Sheldon Tatchell tonight, the founder of Legends Barbershop. They've been training barbers in downtown Johannesburg. And I wonder how it's going. Uh, anybody who's doing any training, anybody who's doing any hiring at the moment is, you should get some sort of medal. There should be a ceremony at the, at the union buildings and you should be getting a medal for your work. Not that you could afford the time to go and get the medal, of course, because it will take a long time. But still, it's a, it's a principal thing. Let's talk to Nisa Moodley this evening, pers- uh, personal finance editor, Daily Maverick, with a particular interest in South African revenue service, Nisa, which is, I guess, why. Um, you're interested in what has gone on today because South African Revenue Service, looking at issues of a lack of tax compliance, a lack of VAT compliance, then uh, gets a coordinated effort, a long overdue coordinated effort to start raiding what they're calling coal smugglers or alleged coal smugglers, people who have been basically taking advantage of either corruption within ESCOM or a lack of proper management within ESCOM to um, to deal with, with the coal supply issue, which has been a big one for an awfully long time. Bring me up to speed, please, with exactly what went down, how it happened. So, hi, hi, Bruce. Thanks for having me. So it looks like SARS was busy following up on all the leads it had with non with people not complying with their tax, you know, non-registering, not registering for your income tax, failing to submit tax returns, under declaring income, and in the process of that, they they managed to to sort of hack into this coal smuggling syndicate, and working together with the National Net Joints Energy Safety and Security Committee, um, they managed to launch an, a massive search and seizure operation across five different provinces. And that's how they, it's an ongoing investigation, so we don't really have much more information at this stage. But SARS estimates that the stuff that they seized and they, the assets they confiscated will mean that we will have saved 500 million rands worth of revenue that would have been lost to the fiscus. Now, that's one aspect of it, of course. The other aspect of it is is the, the nefarious activities of these coal smugglers who apparently the modus operandi is that these guys will go to a mine, collect coal, go to a big dumping zone, dump off the good quality coal, pick up rubbish coal, pick up a whole bunch of other debris and junk as well, deliver that to ESCOM, offload it. That gets put into ESCOM's burners to uh, boil the water to create the steam that moves the turbines that creates electricity eventually. And that's what's causing a huge amount of damage to the infrastructure of ESCOM. 
Well, exactly. That makes me wonder how much of the maintenance and power breakdowns that we're hearing about whenever we have load shedding is actually due to these coal smugglers and their efforts. No, precisely that. And so what, what do we know about the alleged criminal underworld that is uh, part of, the, of this process? I think there was a Daily Maverick investigation that broke much earlier this year, Bruce, if you cast your mind back. And there were some very serious senior high government people that were implicated in this particular syndicate. And I think Andre Dureta, if you have a look at his book, has also made reference to this syndicate. I don't think it's as simple as even one syndicate. I think it's a group of syndicates possibly working together um, to bring to bring ESCOM down and basically at the expense of, of the country and our energy supply and GDP and growth. It, you know, the, the the implications are enormous. It does make me think of, I don't know if you remember, Bruce, if you're as old as I am, back in, in the early 80s, there was this famous drug mafia lord who was on the run for years and the joke was that when he eventually got caught, it was the Reader's Digest sweepstakes that got him out. <laughs> I don't remember this, Nisa. I don't remember this. But the, I mean, um, um, and, the, and the connection is, forgive me, you need to fill in the gaps for those of us the who are so much younger than you. The connection for me is, you know, the Reader's Digest sweepstakes people would find you wherever you were in the world because they <laughs> have this way of tracking you down. And it's almost like SARS has taken on that role. And we're going to get you for non-tax compliance. Oh, and by the way, if you're doing these other things, we're going to bring that down. You know, by the way. <laughs> no, no, exactly. I, I'd say thank you, Nisa, for joining the dots. For me, Nisa Murti is the uh, personal finance editor at Daily Maverick. She's talking to us on this issue this evening because of the SARS connection. But yeah, the criminal underworld is uh, thick and uh, is thick with political in- influence. Where we're led to believe, from the former chief executive of ESCOM, that of course didn't um, endear Andre Dureta to his political masters, and uh, we still haven't seen names named. But SARS finally beginning to lead the charge on this particular matter. Whether or not that leads to the breakup of the syndicates, whether it leads to better quality coal ever ending up in the ESCOM uh, furnaces or not, we don't know at this stage. Neither ESCOM nor SARS is prepared to comment on this particular issue. And so we will keep picking and unpicking this particular story. But yeah, these coal smugglers nabbed, nabbed after the search and seizure operation, uh, SARS tip-offs. And yeah. It's a story of trading. It's a story of development. It's a story of real empowerment. And I love big ideas and the people who implement them. And it's been 12 months since Legends Barber's flagship training academy launched in downtown Johannesburg. Just celebrated its first birthday. Every little bit helps in an economy that's as desperate as ours. And Sheldon Tatchell is the founder of Legends Barber Shop. Uh, it's hard to believe that 12 months has gone by already, Sheldon, since you launched the Academy. What sort of impact have you been able to have so far? Hi, Bruce. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, yes, uh, I mean, I, it's been phenomenal just to see the transition of people being uh, unemployed and not having a hope for it tomorrow and, and then being able to join the training center and at least they are able to to have a skill that they can use forever, you understand, whether they start their own business or whether they join uh, a barbershop. 
done. So, so yeah, so we we celebrated uh, one year yesterday, and it's just phenomenal to see over just about 138 students that we managed to upskill during this time. I, uh, forgive me. I mean, I don't know how hard it is. I, I, I cut my son's hair the other day because he wanted a buzz cut and I did a terrible job. I thought it would be easy yeah. and it's hard. Getting the, the right level of skill to be unleashed with sharp scissors, razor blades and clippers on an unsuspecting public, uh, it doesn't surely it takes more than a year. Based on my own experience, I, I think I probably would take me five. But uh, how quickly <laughs> are you able to train barbers from zero to hero? Uh, we are we are guaranteed to train barbers in the space of twelve weeks, uh, knowing that knowing that they just follow the correct process because we have a twelve week program that takes them from exactly from zero to hero, and they're able to to use their servers, to use their clippers on any person. You understand? And and that's and that's a really exciting part just to see them do this thing, and the whole transition in between is amazing. Would you let them cut your hair, Sheldon? Yes, yes, yes. I went. Uh, <laughs> I actually done my hair the other day there. So, so how the training center actually works, Bruce? It's it's uh, so it's based in downtown, and how these guys actually uh, do training, it's it's much more practical than anywhere else. Uh, so kids come there to that specific training center. And they just give the kids free haircuts. Uh, Sheldon Tattle, the founder of Legends Barbershop, and uh, in the Joburg CBD. And we know the Joburg CBD is a tough place to do business at the best of times. It's a tough place for people to get in and out of. It's an increasingly difficult place and a dangerous place, also from a crime perspective. Um, and we will pick up on that. But I just looked at images that Sheldon was posting on LinkedIn and just glorious investment put into the center of johannesburg really proud investment uh for the legends barbershop and adding that into the mix of course is absolutely critical um there whereabouts are you in the joburg city center sheldon because i i just my, yes. my sense of the joburg city center and it's been a while since i've taken an amble through there um is that it's, it's a tough place to go which makes it nice and cheap of course for rental but you look like you've put quite a bit of money into the space Yes, no, definitely, Bruce. Uh, so we, so we on Pritchard Street. Uh, it's number sixty-eight Pritchard Street. Uh, I fairly believe that the area that was situated it's quite clean uh, compared to the other areas of the CBD. Uh, so that's the reason why we attract so many kids willing to offer their heads for free to get haircuts uh, for the trainers uh, to train on them, and and that's the exciting part. So. So we have invested a lot in the beginning in this training center, and and definitely it's one of those things where where us as a business as legends, so I would take pride in just to see just see the upliftment and the upskilling of the youth. Well, tragically, Ricky Rick died. Um, I think fairly, you know, was it just before? Um, you guys, uh, just before you guys opened, but he was an early investor in it. It, it. it sort of seems to have drawn a huge amount of public support, a huge amount of celebrity support, a huge amount of an, an acknowledgement that this is a way for young people out of poverty to learn a real skill, a real skill that can be transferred anywhere over a long period of time. You look at the old Italian barbers, they're in their 80s and they're still cutting hair and they're still doing the job, but it, it's a way of producing a long-term income stream. No, definitely, definitely. It's it's definitely up there and and uh and since and since Ricky's passing, because I you know Ricky was so fond of not only 
of not only the business side, but he was so fond of the youth and trying to uplift the youth in different ways possible. And you'll hear many stories of him being able just to uh, help a hand for somebody to do something or for somebody to upskill himself in, in any area possible. And, uh, and, yeah, and yeah, I mean, like Ricky has played such a huge role in the business. Uh, uh, looking at just looking at the, the barbers, for example, the barbers will be able to have a skill they're able to do for the rest of their lives. And it's true what you say, Bruce, because now, now they're going to live with the skill. skill and, and it's not often that you get a skill coming around the corner and saying, you know what, uh, this is a school that would love to uplift you, that would love to give you the skill. We all know that back in the day, there used to be schools and uh, yeah, schools about uh, welding, grinding, uh, 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 all of these type of boilermakers and all of those things. Uh, but gone are the days, I understand. And I do feel like us as a country, if we need to go further, because not all kids are leaning towards Moji universities, and, and some of the kids are really good with their hands, understand? So, yeah. so let's make a possibility, let's give them opportunity, you understand, for them to be how are you going to sustain this, Sheldon? I mean, to sustain any sort of training academy, any sort of skills academy with 136 students, unless you've got these guys cutting hair eight hours a day, how are you generating revenue for the next cohort to make sure that you can sustain this level of training and perhaps even grow the opportunity? Uh, so currently, so currently, Bruce, I think I think that's one of the bottlenecks that we have. Uh, currently, it's still a cost center, and and it's a cost center towards the overall business. So the business does take that operations uh, expense on a monthly basis, and uh, and how we look to sustain it is is we just hoping that that government would come on board and basically just come see the good work that we do, and we have engaged with your likes of your CETAs and. Uh, and they see the CEDAs and these type of guys that will be able to at least assist. So because the ultimate goal is that. The ultimate goal is that. If you think about it, how many guys can Legends actually train to filter into its business? It's not much, you understand. But if you look at, if you look at the empowering aspect around it, the ultimate goal that, that we have in place is that if we are able to upskill uh, the next entrepreneurs and place them in the communities where they come from, and give them a container, give them the necessary means for them to become become the person that they would love to become in the community. I understand? So they can also have a story like Sheldon one day to say, you know what, I had a skill and this is what I managed to do with my skill and now I have a franchise. I understand? So that's the thinking behind it, you understand? Because this is something that could live on for generations to come. When you go to the seaters, when you, I don't know, would, uh, would approach the Department of Small Business, I'm not sure who you've approached, what sort of response do you get? Do you sort of get a pat on the head and said, well done, Sheldon, keep on keeping on? Do you get any response at all? Uh, not really, not really. There's not much response. I mean, I have even uh, escalated up until the highest level. Uh, and, and it doesn't seem like there's much traction in terms of, in terms of where we go into, you understand, and and somehow I just feel like if if they can acknowledge just the little that we're doing, I mean that would that would be something else. That will that will just elevate what we're doing currently because what we're doing now it's 
it's a comes from it definitely just comes from from the funds and the profit that legends make when we just pump it into the training center. So so yeah, so so I would say that uh, we've been knocking on doors, we've been knocking on sitters' doors for a while now and, and still there's there's been no traction. Sheldon Tatchell. It's so irritating, isn't it? Because you're doing really good work. 138 people graduating from the first year of the Legends Barbershop uh, College in downtown Johannesburg in Pritchard Street. Have you tried the, fla- the the training academy? Have you had your hair cut there? What was it like? Will you go back a second time? And it's one of those things. I remember Jenny Cruz Williams coming back from the hairdressers and she got to a very experienced hairdresser. And everybody looked, turned and looked, and not in the way that she wanted them to turn and look. <laughs> and unfortunately, it becomes part of your life until it grows out again, if you're lucky enough to have hair that grows out. But yes, uh, certainly wonderful work being done by people like Sheldon. And there are many, many hundreds and even thousands of people like Sheldon who look at uh, the situation that the country finds itself in. They look at the situation that young people find themselves in. They say, how can we begin to address the problem? Unfortunately, there needs to be a support network for people like Sheldon who are doing good work, but they keep having to fund it themselves. Surely there's got to be a better way of doing it. The Money Show. Small business. With Pablo Fatidis. Pablo's chief executive at Auric Business Accelerator, our small business focus on a Thursday evening. When I talk to people in presentations and from stages and stuff, and I talk about the long tail of COVID, they look at me as if I'm a bit thick and say, but COVID's over. COVID's not a problem anymore. Why should we be worrying about COVID? And I just see the after effects and the lingering effects and the consequences of COVID still in virtually every single aspect of our lives, Pavlo. And I I don't know how long it takes to shake out, but it's certainly not shaken out yet. No, it's not even close to being shaken out, Bruce. You know, so many people I'm speaking to in business at the moment um, are finding their lived reality of everyday life so profoundly, fundamentally different to in their businesses to what it was pre-COVID. Um, and, and very often, they struggle to articulate why and what the reason is. Um, very quickly, you know, people point fingers to inflation, they point fingers to rising interest rates, they point fingers to skill shortages, to interrupted electricity, amongst other things. But honestly, most of those things were there in some shape or form, you know, ebbing and flowing and rising and waning or waxing and waning pre-COVID. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't put an answer on to what the reason is. And more importantly, uh, they're finding themselves specifically, and the expression I get is, I'm right back in the engine room. I'm right back square and center in almost every activity that makes this business work, despite the fact that I've got a team, despite the fact that I've got the same customers, the same suppliers, I'm completely overwhelmed. And it feels like a world of firefighting every day. Is it my fault for doing that? Or is it simply the environment that needs the founder back in the engine room as much as they know they shouldn't be there, as much as they know that they've got a great team, as much as they know um, that the business long-term will be better off with them thinking about rather than working in uh, operations. Um, they just feel the need to be there, Pavlo. I'm, you know, it, it, I think lots of people have got the problem. How do you differentiate between the need and the feeling of the need, if you know what I mean? 
So, Bruce, I had a conversation with a, um, a business owner that, well, what they do is they put stuff on top of tables. So it's uh, placemats and paper napkins and literally everything other than cutlery and crockery. And um, it's an established business. It does around 600 million rands worth of annual revenue. So it's, it knows what it's doing and it's doing a really good job at it. Um, and it trades across about six or seven different countries. And the founder was telling me that she recently attended a, um, a meeting of similar business owners um, who were being advised by uh, an individual who was doing a presentation to them to let their teams do the work. They need to get out the engine room or get out the kitchen. And one individual then raised his hand and said, well, I did. And I stepped away from a deal uh, that, had, that, that was on the front door of our business. We've got the right products and services. We've got everything right. And on the back of this, you must work on the business, not in it. You must get out the way and let your team do the, the work that needs to be done. I stepped away from it to let the team convert it. And in the process, we lost a 24 million rand deal. Not because the team wasn't able and capable, but because there were some refinements that were needed to be yeah. offered, made, said, and presented to really lock down that particular deal from that particular client and customer. And I just don't think you can ever really step away. This notion of operating and running and managing a business remotely from a desert island somewhere with a pina colada in one hand and a phone in the other, <laughs> um, that's just not there anymore. Yeah. No, absolutely, Pablo. So how are we going to get ourselves out of the day-to-day? if ever again, because ideally you don't want to be in the day-to-day. -day. Ideally you want the day-to-day -to, -day to be managed by the people who've been paid a salary to do so, so that you are able to go out and find the deals, whether it's over a pina colada or anything else. Well, you, you will get back to some shape and form of, of getting your time and attention focused on the right things, other than the daily, weekly, monthly operational activities. And Bruce, it's about simply going back to basics and asking yourself why your business should even exist. And if you find yourself in answering that question, saying, well, I've got a great product and I've got a great service and it has all these bells and whistles and it has all these features, you're in trouble. If you turn around and say, it's because I've got a great price, you're absolutely in trouble. And if you turn around and say, well, you know, we've got great service. Then you need to take a deep, hard look and say, well, how is that service generated? And can it be generated again and again, predictably, reliably, consistently? And what you most likely will find is that that service comes from one or two individuals or perhaps even yourself. So asking that question is a tough question and a hard question to ask because the one thing that COVID did do is it set a new tone and tempo for how people live and work and play We've been raging over the last two weeks about the issue of remote work versus in-person work, for example, amongst other things. And if you remind yourself that you only exist really in truth to solve a problem, you then have to ask, well, if my world has changed as much as it has, who am I solving problems for and how have their worlds changed? And maybe that's where the gap is. Maybe the way I go about solving problems for my customers is no longer relevant because in fact, their worlds have changed almost as much as mine has. 
It's the starting point to understand why you do what you do. Uh, exactly right, Pablo. So, I mean, a, again, it's about ensuring, I suppose, that the people that you have, you know, who have helped you get your business this far um, are also, I suppose, empowered to take you to the next level, to the next step, because you're not going to do it yourself. You may think that it's your responsibility and ultimately it is yours. It is your fault if it goes wrong. You are the one who is ultimately responsible, but you've got to be able to bring people on board to make sure that stuff happens without your personal i don't want to use the term interference but interference well it is a form of interference it's a form of of demonstrating a lack of confidence in your team for for example but what should guide that bruce is something and whenever i, I speak to business owners and say you know what what guides your decisioning every day you know how do you how do you when you build a business what are you building it against and mostly what you find are people build, people are building their businesses against some sort of financial forecast. But, you know, if structure determines behavior, a business doesn't exist on its own. It sits on a chassis of some sort. And your team are using the chassis to take the business into that market. And that chassis is classically called a business model. And the question is, if you're finding yourself pulled back into the daily, weekly, monthly operations, typically something that your team should be able to manage and handle without you, your approach to fixing it can be that of a good doctor or a bad doctor. So a bad doctor looks at you, measures your pulse, uh, puts a thermometer where you might not want it, and then gives you a pill to cure the problem. A good doctor will cure the pain but more importantly, do a deeper diagnosis to say, why does it keep on happening? How do we prevent it ever coming back again? And the same process needs to be done with your team. You've got to get them into a room with a whiteboard. This needs to be done in person, not remotely. And you need to try and map out the activities of what people do, how the information flows, where does the product or service go? How does the money work? to see what is the thing that keeps on breaking that requires you to charge back in and firefight that problem to resolve the issue either for the team, the client, or your supplier. If you map it out in that simple way so that the baton can be passed from one person to the next and information can flow effectively from one person to the next, you start to rebuild and restructure the business, hopefully, aligned to how things have changed for your clients and customers. And through that, you get your team back on board, reorientated around doing things in the right way. It's the only way to delegate effectively nowadays, as opposed to just barking instructions, frustrated with everyone in the world, and tomorrow finding yourself in the same position again. Precisely. Thank you, Pavlo Fatidis at Auric business the money show personal finance with warren ingram warren ingram is an executive director at galileo capital he's a personal financial advisor he's a certified financial planner and joins us on a thursday night to share with us his perspectives on how you should best deal with your money and my goodness 
gracious me, Warren. Markets in February. I miss February's markets. I think at the peak we were up about 13%. And we said, oh, good, we've got a whole year's worth of gains in the bank. And I think by the end of September, we were in the red again. Completely. Everything evaporated, everything eviscerated, everything in meltdown mode. And it's quite hard to stay happy, focused, invested in an environment where, frankly, we've been going sideways for years. Help, please, bring my, bring my mojo back. I think it's a, I mean, it's a good, it's a good summation of our state of mind, all of us as investors, especially in, in South Africa, Bruce. So, uh, I mean, you're, you're kind of a voice for the, for the voiceless often. And that, that's how lots and lots of us are, are feeling about our portfolios. And I think maybe a couple of comments. One, we're in a environment where Uncertainty is, is really high everywhere. I, I mean, it's, you know, it would be wrong to think that we're operating in isolation in South Africa and that what goes on in our economy and our political environment is, is unique to us. And, and that's why our markets are, are doing what they're doing. We, we are massively influenced by what goes on around the world. And, and always important to remember that because w- when we're in the doldrums like we are now and, and, you know, we struggle to see the light, both in a literal and ESCOM sense. Uh, you know, we, we just need to figure out that, that actually the reason things will turn, the reason, uh, that, that, that we will kind of see a rise in, in our fortunes as investors might have nothing to do with what's going on in our immediate surrounds. It, it might have nothing to do with, uh, you know, ESCOM getting even worse or getting better or Transnet doing whatever it's going to do. It might have to do with a, a you know, gray-haired man sitting far, far away in America who, along with some other gray-haired people, decides that uh, they've beaten the inflation monster and and they're going to stop raising interest rates and and at some point start decreasing interest rates. And and the, those you know kind of relatively minor decisions in terms of interest rate moves have enormous impacts on on sentiment and and therefore how markets move. So my starting point is. When things are like like they are now, and 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 a lot of doom and gloom surrounds you, the the one thing to understand is you, you need to kind of isolate yourself from that doom and gloom from a psychological point of view, and just say, I don't exactly know why this went down. I mean, we can think of lots of good reasons, uh, and I don't exactly know why why markets will turn, but but turn they will. That's what markets do, and and so. Don't kind of forecast that, you know, what's happened in the last months and years is exactly going to be repeated in the next months and years. Because whatever we know about markets, they do move in big cycles uh, like a gallstone. They do pass, you know, whatever it is, it'll pass. And 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 then all of a sudden you wake up, you know, in, in, in a little while going, gee, actually things are okay. You know, if sticking to the plan, staying invested has actually worked. I'm, I'm up again and, and I'm okay again. And we wouldn't have said that in February. You know, if we, we were sitting in February going, we don't exactly know why things are up. Uh, and we, you know, it wasn't much reason to, to kind of be positive. You know, inflation was really a problem then. Uh, and, and things were okay. And, and so I, I think Bruce, you know, number one is don't sell in panic when everyone else is just selling. I, mean, I think you, you need to kind of, Stay focused on yourself and your strategies and, and ignore the doom and gloom and, and the general malaise that's around you.
I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that we're in a cell frame of mind, but I do get a sense from a number of people that I talk to from time to time that they're in that sort of space that says, what's the point of investing? I was going to say, what's the point of carrying on? That sounds a bit desperate. Uh, what's the point of, of, of keeping putting money into investments when they're not growing? I'm going to put money in, I'm going to keep money in cash because cash right now is giving me eight, eight and a quarter percent. And I'm going to keep it in cash because at least I can see the value of my money growing. I'm watching the all share index go between 70,000 and 75,000 and 70,000 and 75,000. And look like it's going to drop below 70. And then it looks like, and then uh, uh, I can't deal with that. So actually, I'm going for stability and certainty. And I think that that is a perfectly natural reaction. And it is unfortunately a disease of, uh, which is a result of the uncertainty that we're in, where people just go, you know what, sod this, I'm, I'm going to cash. I think it's a, a, a commonly held view, especially when interest rates are are high like they are now. And and you know you could probably make the same argument for American investors who are looking at their stock market and saying to themselves, you know, I can go and park my money in dollars and earn five and a half percent on 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 short term interest rate uh, d- deposits. So so I think it's 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 human, it's natural. Um, I guess a couple of comments. One. While the JSE is going between seventy and seventy-five thousand, and on this kind of in a horrible narrow little railway line of of market move, uh, it's important to remember that that the companies that you own, because that's actually what what, what happens when you buy the JSE, you're buying you know a bunch of companies. Uh, a, a lot of them are are starting to to record some fairly healthy dividend growth. So so the the, the income that they're paying you as an investor. Is is looking not bad, you know. Some of these companies are starting to perform pretty well, uh, and and the the one thing about investing in the stock market is we we get fooled by the index, we get fooled by the the seventy to seventy five thousand move, and then we say nothing's happening, we're not going anywhere. But but what you're forgetting is something is happening. You're earning dividends, and there, there might not be massive dividends. There might not be you know there might only be one or two percent uh, a year compared to cash, which is at eight, or, as you, as you're pointing out. But but those dividends that you reinvest, and even if the JSC's been moving sideways for quite some time. You keep reinvesting. What you're doing very often is you're you're buying those the, those shares that you know might might be at a point where the JSE is at seventy thousand, and, and you keep accumulating those shares. You keep earning your one or two percent dividends, and and when you look back over a five year period, the the index might have done nothing, and your investments are up, uh, and and that's the simple impact of of reinvesting dividends. And and I think it's a key thing that we often forget. And then, you know, to, to the point around cash, it's lovely to get that certainty. You know, a certainty uh, is is kind of the, the one thing we would all like in this world. You know, whether it's you know what's going to happen with with the World Cup results in the weekend, or what's going to happen to the weather, and what's going to happen to our investments. All of those things. Yep. Would be, it would be lovely to have the certainty. Unfortunately, certainty comes at a cost in the world of of money, and and that cost in 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 when you're buying cash, which is what you're doing with your eight or eight and a half percent, is for Firstly, you're going to give away somewhere around a third to half of that to to our friends at SARS, and and yes, they're doing increasingly better with their money and and collecting more and more tax and putting more and more bad guys in jail. But uh, you know, you're paying for that with that tax that you're paying, and, and I'm not sure you want to do that. Uh, and and secondly, you are going to miss out if you've got your your money sitting in cash and you're waiting for things to get better. You know the 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 b- beloved wait for things to get better mantra is something a lot of people talk about all the time. Unfortunately, things get better long after the markets have jumped up. 
by, by the time we all know that everything's okay and and you know the, the world is stable again and uh you know we've got a bit of peace and quiet in in in, in markets uh, what's happened is the jsc shot up and it's gone through that 75000 level and it's sitting at 90000 uh, and and then you go oh hang on um i'm 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 only getting 8% and and the the, the market's given us 12 or 13 and i've i've missed out on that and i'm still paying all my tax so that's the cost of certainty. And, and, here, here, here's, here's the thing, though, Warren. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. For the last two or three years, I could have got about 8% of my money. I've been sitting in, and that, and that's cumulatively compounded. What's that? 27% in total. Um, and the JSC, if I've been an index investor over that time, I've seen no gains whatsoever. Um, and so this is where, this is where this capitulation happens. People are saying, one keeps saying stay invested, stay invested. And that's, and I want to stay invested. And I like the dividends when they come in and I do reinvest them, but it's not giving me the 8% that my friend Johnny is getting. And they forget that they're paying the tax on the interest. They forget all of those terrible things. And I just wonder, you know, the, the, the illusion of security is a very dangerous illusion. True, and and I guess uh, it's it's our job to keep beating the drum, to keep reminding people that you can't uh, you, you can't get caught on this uh, you, you know the, the, this need for certainty at the cost of everything else. The, the the stock markets, when you look at them and and how they perform, they, they never move in this beautiful straight line. You know the, the the graph of a stock market when you zoom in on it, you know it 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 looks like a sawtooth. You know it looks like a, the the blade of a saw. It just goes up and down all over the place and the the more you zoom out the smoother it gets and eventually you know if you zoom out even further it it looks like a nice smooth line going up a lot of the time uh, and that's the point about markets is you've got to you've got to be able to isolate yourself from the noise and and the noise and 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 this kind of stability of of moving in this horrible band going sideways could easily last for 3 or 4 years what's interesting is it's very rare over any five-year period that you actually lose money on, on, on the stock market in, when you're an index investor. Uh, and, and, you know, over periods longer than five years, extremely rare to not make money. Uh, and, and it's always been, despite everything that's gone on, it's always been the asset class in South Africa, in the U.S., pretty much most of the world and, and maybe with Japan as the exception, which has generated the, the, the most return for investors. The, the requirements are pretty simple. You, you don't need to be a genius. You, you have to have an iron constitution. I, I agree with that. You have to be able to ignore a lot of what's going on around you. And then you just have to stick to your own plan. You have to stay invested and, and kind of don't lose your head when everyone else around you is because the, the fluctuations of markets, the volatility, which is what people talk about a lot, you know, in, 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 in markets, that's normal. That's part of the course, part of the course happens for long periods of time. And often people do capitulate and that, and it's amazing when you, when you look at it in history, uh, most people capitulate like lemmings just before things turn. And I don't know why I can't, you know, I wish we could figure it out, but, but it seems to happen. You know, we, we reach a critical mass of capitulation, all jump off the, the cliff like the lemmings and then the market bounces. Uh, and that's my point is don't be the lemming. Don't jump off the cliff. Just wait and stay invested and, and, you know, maybe play the show again, you know, next week again. You know, if you, if you don't, if you feel tempted, just listen to this again. It markets do bounce and up. And I promise you, I'm not a stack record. This is what markets do. And yeah, I believe you, but boy, it's hard to keep believing. Um, you know, it's, it's like, I suppose, religious people who lose faith. 
and they go, send me a sign. <laughs> and then they get hit by a train or whatever the case is. That could be a sign. <laughs> yeah, we're looking for signs of hope. In, in, all of, in all of this also, Warren, is this need and uh, this persistent need to keep the emergency fund going. And that's quite a difficult and frustrating thing to do as well. And I suppose if you've got an emergency fund drawing 8% at the moment, that's okay because at least you're being rewarded for having that emergency fund. Um, the emergency fund in this context, though, is there a different way of thinking about it at a time where market fluctuations are as volatile as they are? Um, I, I mean, to me, an emergency fund is, is, is kind of a foundation of any great investment strategy. And, and it should be uh, at, at, at the smallest, uh, around three months of your, ex, your expenses at the biggest six months of your expenses. And, and, and the name, uh, you know, on the box is important. It's the emergency fund. It's not the planned expenses fund or the, the, you know, the bond, you know, the, the deposit on the house fund or the deposit on the car or anything. It's, it's there for when things really go wrong that you haven't planned for and and I, I think it's a critical element of of any investment strategy because what happens is uh, uh, you know Murphy hits usually at the worst point in time R right when things are you know stock markets are down that that's when you're going to have your financial emergency and what you don't want to do then is be forced to sell your your stock market investments at a massive discount because you don't have an emergency fund so so I think Bruce the emergency fund should be a real Static, stable thing in your life. If you want certainty, that's, that's a very nice, certain thing to have in your, in your life. But, you know, accumulating investments now, if someone said to me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm able to generate a bit of cash from, from savings or whatever it is, shouldn't I just add that to my existing cash? My, my argument will be, you know, we, we're at a time where markets are, are, are going nowhere for a while. Interest rates are high. Sentiment is really negative. What it tells me is there, there are some fabulous buying opportunities in, in the market. And I don't think you need to be a stock picking genius to do this. I, I think you can pretty much buy the market, buy the index, uh, and, and you'll do okay. I think, uh, you know, a, a bit of patience, a bit of time on your side and things will turn. What I would say is don't forget. The, you know the, the D word diversification. I, I'm not saying put yeah. all of your money just in the the JSE top 40 or the JSE top 50. I'm saying you know put your money in the global stock market, the local stock market. Don't forget to buy some bonds. Don't forget uh, you know to have a bit of uh, a bit of cash on hand for investing, not not just for for your emergency fund. Uh, and, you know, and I think you know typical balanced unit trust, for example, always runs with some cash and it always has some bonds and even some property companies and the like. And and that blend is really often the, the thing that saves a, a, a portfolio from a lousy year because one part of the portfolio won't perform. And the surprising part will be the, the you know, the, whatever it will be that no one anticipated will be the portion that really shoots up. Uh, and, and, and I think that di diversification for me is probably more valuable in, in terms of, of an investment strategy that, than having a big cash pile just because interest rates are high. I, I, I mean, I'm just going to, okay. you know, kind of re repeat the point. I, I don't like sitting on too much cash b because of the tax angle. And that's really what bothers me about, about, about you know, an excess cash. Now, unless you're kind of never pay tax and you're not going to pay in, you know, income tax, then, then maybe, you know, getting the 8% tax free is wonderful, but there, there are very few people in that position. Otherwise, Bruce, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of just holding cash. I, I think it comes at a massive opportunity cost of lost growth, uh, you know, in, into, into the future. 
Thank you, Warren. A question from Lawrence this evening. I recently attended my 10-year anniversary uh, of the, my university graduation. Almost half, if not slightly more, of the people who graduated with me have either emigrated or currently working abroad. In 20 years from now, my children might not be able to study a degree at a local university due to the economy, politics, accreditation, etc. How does one go about saving for an international education, considering... Over the past 20 years, the rand has depreciated on average by 6% to the dollar annually. U.S. education is escalating at 5% annually, meaning at 11%, I'm standing still not to mention taxes. Oh, yes, and the average cost of a four-year degree seems to be $100,000 in today's terms. That's a cheerful thought, Lawrence, but an important thought. Thank you for that thought. Um, and, um, yeah, we'll get Warren to give you a perspective on that in a moment. I see from Discovery this evening, Dr. Ryan Noach, Chief Executive at Discovery Health, has resigned. The company says he's been there 15 years. He's had an entrepreneurial opportunity outside of the healthcare and financial services sectors. Interesting. Don't say what that is. Um, what's interesting here is he, there, there are no bridges being burned at all. He is staying on as a non-executive director of the Discovery Health Board. Uh, and so that'll be from the 1st of January. He's being replaced internally by Dr. Ronald Whelan, um, who will be taking over with uh, a three-month handover. And Dr. Ronald Whelan, of course, will then have his predecessor sitting on the board knowing exactly <laughs> what the issues are, of course, which I think is supportive and lovely. Uh, but again, um, it's uh, it's interesting how some companies, when you leave, you leave. Uh, and some companies, when you've got a huge institutional knowledge, that institutional knowledge is retained and kept nice and close. So on to that question from Lawrence with Warren in a moment. The Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. Money Show brought to you by ABSA CIB, driving impactful action-led insights through the Insights series. ABSA is a registered FSP. Lawrence and many, many others, uh, Warren, worried about the future of university education, may want to put kids into American education or education elsewhere. By his calculation, currently, uh, a U.S. degree is costing about $100,000. I wonder if he's factoring in flights home and food and accommodation and, you know, all of the stuff that comes with being a young adult, pocket money and beer money and even American beer. But yeah, uh, the, the, the ticket for education into the future, the ticket for healthcare into the future, the ticket for every care is going to be enormous. Let's focus on education. How do we begin to save for an event that is 10, 15 years away of tertiary education, perhaps in a foreign destination? I mean, I think maybe a couple of comments, Bruce. One, uh, you know, Lawrence's uh, rand depreciation number, just for people listening, you know, he's saying 6% a year over the past 20 years. Uh, I mean, he's 100% right. It, that, that's, that's almost exactly what it has been. Uh, so, so that is something to factor into any long-term uh, decision when you're buying an, uh, an overseas asset in, a, in an overseas currency. Uh, and, and then the, the, the U.S. education costs. That's, that's also true. Um, I'm, uh, I think it's a, kind of a really U.S. focused question from Lawrence, because if you look at the, the, the education costs outside of the U.S., you know, in, in Europe and, and the like, um, the, the, not, not as, not as fast. So, so m- maybe one comment, Lawrence, is don't, don't kind of focus just on the U.S. They, they've got particular problems with their tertiary education where 
university costs have, have escalated incredibly quickly and, and there's a whole lot of social economic issues that, that's causing that. Uh, I, I suspect that that, that uh, education costs in America will slow down um, so, somewhere soon. Uh, but, but my first comment is, you know, n- number one, look around. D- don't just look at the US. And, and then number two, uh, the, the, the calculation around 11%, I'm, I'm not shying away from that. I think it's an important one to aim for. So I'll, I'll address it. But, but just the other things that, that parents don't always consider is, you know, an undergrad degree in, in, in a good university in South Africa is still worth something. And, and, and certainly one way to kind of circumvent this cost is, you know, do the undergrad in SA and, and do the postgrad of, overseas. You know, th- then you're cutting down your postgrad costs or, or your time overseas by maybe a year or two. Uh, and, and that will make a huge impact on, 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 on the costs of this. And, and then don't forget, you know, lots of kids every year from, from South Africa get, uh, you know, uh, partial or, or sometimes very substantial bursaries to study overseas. Obviously, they've got to be strong academically or in sport or whatever the deal is. You know, a, a, a good at video games. I'm not sure what the what, what the criteria are nowadays. But but just don't forget to apply for the the bursaries as well. And and then to the point when you've got a a long time horizon like this, twenty years. Uh, there, there are uh, ways that you can you can buy into investments that 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 isolate you from these uh, the, this depreciation of the rand. So, for example, uh, there are a category of exchange traded funds and unit trusts in South Africa called feeder funds, uh, and and those will you know kind of ring fence the the rand dollar. So you can you could buy, for example, a feeder fund that only invests in global shares, and and so if the rand's depreciating, you'll be benefiting from that, and if global markets are rising, you'll be benefiting from that as well uh, and and that's one way to to very quickly at least sort out the rand dollar in your in in your savings uh, problem it doesn't solve necessarily in a, in a guaranteed way the the 5% depreciation uh, that, that you'll be facing or, you know when you look at the education costs rising but but you know global stock markets kind of tend to rise in in, in about a 5 to 8% a year level over long periods of time so you know a feeder fund should get you pretty close to your 11 uh, 11% a year uh, re- return and possibly b- b- better than that in in some years and possibly w- worse as well and, and i think you know doing a kind of a, a, a disciplined monthly investment might be the best way that you can do this Lawrence, because you've got a long time front a time frame on your side uh, and and hopefully the, the capital gains tax will be the only thing that you'll be paying w- when you do global equities only you won't be paying tax on interest and the like Warren, thank you. Um, I, I think it's a nice summation, and it's a brief summation. And again, Lawrence, it, it shows you what's possible. Um, and for more, you know, intimate and uh, immediate information, I mean, the detail of everybody's plan is going to be different. The detail of everybody's portfolio is going to be different. But the point is, it is possible. And it's also about thinking more laterally about the problem. This isn't a, a simply a, a one-size-fits-all solution. Um, undergrad degrees, you know, um, are what they are in different parts of the world. Don't discount the value of a South African education just because your friends at the Bri are saying so. Don't discount um, the, the the possibility of going outside of the United States if you want an international education. There are loads of really good opportunities available. And for bright young people with global ambitions, huge opportunities in many parts of the world. 
The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield was brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking, bringing you award-winning trade and working capital funding solutions to unlock the full potential of your business story. APSA is a registered FSP.